0: I don't know if you picked up in that reading, but we're going to, in a sense, be venturing into some pretty deep waters today, so we should pray for God's help. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, do pray that you give us hearts that are ready to hear your word. Uh, Please make us those who uh, tremble before your word, who receive it with humility, Uh, help us to trust your word uh, to be for our good and to obey it for your glory. Uh, in Christ's name, Amen. Uh, so as I was uh, preparing this sermon this week, uh, it got me thinking of a scene from a romantic comedy way back in 1994. Right, uh, I grew up uh, with a dad who was blind, uh, so he didn't watch much TV, and a mum and two sisters, so I had to watch lots of romantic comedies. Uh, and this is what I remember. Uh, so what I'm going to do is recite the lines of uh, one of, the, of the scene, a particular scene in this movie. If you're brave enough to show your age, you can yell out what you think this movie is. Right, so here's the line, here's the scenes. Uh, this is the man, right? He says, let me ask you one thing. I don't have a good British accent, so but imagine that. Let me ask you one thing. Do you think after we've dried off a bit and after we've spent lots more time together that you might agree not to marry me? And do you think that not being married to me might maybe be something you could consider doing for the rest of your life? Do you? And the woman says, of course, I do. Anyone know that movie? Yell it out. Four Weddings and a Funeral. There it is. There it is. It's Hugh Grant, Andy McDowell. They're standing in the rain a wonderful romantic scene, uh, which really is an absolute parody of marriage, isn't it? Because even though they say, I do, to one another, it's really clear that they're not binding themselves to one another by promises. They're binding themselves to one another by feelings. Because according to the big message of four weddings and a funeral, is that the most important thing in life is being someone who is not true so much to your word, but being someone who is true to your heart, true to your feelings, true to who you are. And isn't it true that nearly 25 years later, that's a definition of marriage that basically everyone has bought into hook, line, and sinker? The most important thing about love is being true to who you are, being true to what you feel. Oh, but it does raise some questions, doesn't it? Well, what kind of loyalty should we expect in relationships, in marriage? What level of commitment should we expect? Are we called to be people who are faithful to our feelings? or people who are faithful to our word?" It's those kind of questions that this passage in Malachi is exploring. What place should things like loyalty and trust and faithfulness have amongst the people of God? That's a a big question. And this passage makes it clear uh, that those kind of things should have a central place. Have a look at the passage, right? Five times in these seven verses, you might want to underline them, circle them, highlight them, whatever works for you. Five times in seven verses we read the word, unfaithful verse 10 god says his people have been unfaithful to one another verse 11 he says judah has been unfaithful verses 14 and 15 twice god laments the fact that many men in israel have been unfaithful to their wives and so in verse 16 he urges his people to be on their guard against what against unfaithfulness it's pretty clear what the big idea in the passage is it's guarding ourselves against unfaithfulness and you'll see from the outline that we're gonna that Malachi explores that idea by addressing three specific issues in the lives of God's people so the first you can see it there is in verse 10 it's where Malachi addresses a kind of general unfaithfulness amongst God's family have a look there verse 10. Uh, Do we not all have one father, Malachi says? Did not one God create us? So why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? You you see Malachi's basic point, he's saying the people of Israel are family. Uh, They've got one God, he's their father and they are God's children, all of them together and that should influence Malachi says how they treat one another, how they relate to one another. We talk about this in our family all the time, right? The kids are fighting and snatching and pushing. There's kind of stuff going all over the place. And we interrupt and say, in our family, we don't treat one another like that. We treat one another with kindness and gentleness and respect because that's how God our Father has treated us. Right? that's what I guess in saying that we're not saying of course that it's okay for our kids to treat children who aren't in our family however they like right but we're saying all the more this is your brother or sister all the more you should treat them with kindness and respect. right That's what Malachi is saying to Israel their family. so they ought to treat one one another with kindness and love and loyalty. But instead, Malachi says they're profaning the covenant of their ancestors. Right? They're, they're being unfaithful to one another. Right? You, you might remember this idea, idea of covenant came up last week. The covenant last week was between God and the priests of Israel. Right? That was the first uh, nine verses of chapter 2. Uh, here we see, uh, I guess when we look at the idea of covenant in the Bible, uh, we see that it actually has two different dimensions. Right? Uh, uh, on the one hand, uh, this idea of covenant has a vertical dimension, right? because there's a, a formal agreement, a, a relationship, a, a bit like a contract between God and people. Right? That, that's a vertical dimension. But on the other hand, there's also a horizontal dimension, right? But because God's people aren't just bound to Him, they're bound to one another. Right? They're part of the same family. And that's what Malachi is pointing out here. He's saying Israel's unfaithfulness to one another is profaning the covenant that exists between them. It's ruining it, it's breaking it, it's polluting it. Why is that the case? Well, it's because uh, without things like trust and loyalty and faithfulness, there's no basis for relationship at all, is there? Those are the things around which community uh, evolves, revolves rather. So with the people of Israel, they're not being true to their word. They're breaking their promises. They're being casual about their commitments. And Malachi says that is destroying the community that God has bound together. It's pulling it apart. And of course, the same is true for us as a church. Right? We're family. We're through trusting in Christ. We've been reconciled to God. But we've also been reconciled to one another. And the family life of our church will only function well, uh, if as much as possible, we're people who are faithful, are people who are true to our word. And by and large, we do a pretty good job of that. Right? I don't want to come out with the big stick here, but I do just want to mention two things that I think we have to be careful of. Uh, the first is that uh, most of you know that uh, the life of our church is structured around a whole lot of different ministry teams. Uh, And most of you are in one of those teams, we're very thankful for that. Uh, But of course those teams will only function well if there's trust, isn't it? If people are faithful to their commitments, if there's a degree of dependability, if people are true to their word. Uh, So as much as possible when your team is rostered on, what does that mean? It means that you turn up, that builds trust, not turning up erodes trust, you see. And you turn up at the time you agreed to turn up. Your team agreed, so you turn up at that time. If you don't turn up then, it erodes trust. And you turn up ready to go, having done the preparation you said you would do. You want to be a person of your word, right? Your yes is your yes, your no is your no. And I know there are exceptions to this, absolutely there are, but in general, you do all those things even if you don't feel like it. Because you want to be someone who is true to your word, not just true to how you feel. So, I don't feel like doing my kids prep this week. A whole lot of people are affected by that. You see. The more we do these things, the more we're true to our word, the more there'll be a sense of real trust and buy-in and loyalty in our ministry teams. That's the first thing. And the second thing I think we have to just be a bit careful of, is gossip. Now I don't think this is a big issue uh, but it is worth mentioning uh, because lots of you are a bit like me, your verbal processes, you like to talk and so when you know something about someone you like to talk about it. The trouble is sometimes you might pass on information to people who really have no business knowing it. It's not that you're maliciously out to get them, it's just that in that moment, in that particular moment you're a little bit careless with your words. Well, we do have to watch that if we want to be a church that, that it keeps being a place of real trust and loyalty and faithfulness. Because gossip has a way of eating away at that. So we just have to be careful about those two things. right? So we have to be careful about this general unfaithfulness amongst God's people. We want to be people who are true to our word. And in verses 11 and 12, uh, Malachi zooms in on a much more specific issue a specific issue of unfaithfulness. Uh, It's what I've called mixed marriages. Essentially, a marriage uh, between a believer and an unbeliever. Let me read those verses. Verse 11. Uh, Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. So so Judah's done this thing that's unfaithful to God. They've done something. Uh, The word there for detestable is what other translations say. It's an abomination. That's intense. It's intense, isn't it? What's this abomination? It's there at the end of verse 11. It's pretty stark. The men of Israel are marrying women... Who worship a foreign God. What does that mean? Well, in light of verse 10, I think it means that they're marrying someone who's outside the family. Someone who doesn't call God their father, you see. God had specifically banned this for his people, not not because of some racial prejudice. God's got nothing against people of different ethnicities marrying one another. Uh, But he simply wanted to preserve uh, the purity, the spiritual purity of his people. He wanted his people to be completely devoted to him. And he recognized that that kind of devotion to him was nearly impossible if you choose to enter, enter into the intimate union of marriage with someone who doesn't share your faith. Why is that? Because God created marriage to be what the Bible calls a one-flesh union. A man and woman united in every way. Physically, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. That's the point here. So God says it's, it's just not right for his people to have that kind of intimate union with someone who's outside his family, someone who worships another God. So he made that really clear. At least he tried to. Right? Well, he did make it clear, just that Israel didn't hear him. Right? Deuteronomy chapter 7, before his people enter the promised land, this is what God said through Moses. He said, Do not intermarry with the other people in the land. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why? Verse 4, Because they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. That's pretty clear. Right, don't, don't marry people who worship other gods because you'll end up worshipping their gods rather than me. That's what God saying. And that's why God's so angry here because that's exactly what the men of Israel are doing. And so God says they're desecrating, they're, they're polluting, they're, they're corrupting. Notice that there, the sanctuary that he loves. That that word sanctuary could refer to the temple, right? God's God's holy place, uh, but I think it probably here refers uh, to God's people, right? God's holy people. Why do I say that? Well, it, it's because it's Israel. Notice that uh, Malachi says that it's the sanctuary that the Lord loves, right? It's Israel that God loves. It's Israel that the God is devoted to, and in the context here, He wants them to be devoted to Him. Uh, But instead, they're they're sleeping around with foreign women uh, and probably engaging with their gods too. Now, it does need to be said that these words uh, don't apply in exactly the same way to us. Particularly, they do in some ways, but particularly if uh, if you become a Christian after you've already married someone who's not a Christian. Right, because in verse 12, notice what Malachi says, he prays that God, for the sake of the purity of his people, would remove from Israel any man who is married to an unbeliever. And because the situation here is that the people of Israel would become spiritually unclean through these marriages with unbelievers. That's the fear. right? But in 1 Corinthians 7, as some people ask Paul, they pose the question, they say, Having become a Christian, do I have to separate from my husband or wife who is not a Christian? And Paul says, absolutely not. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12, Paul says, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Because the unbelieving husband has been sanctified, made holy through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. So, you see, In this situation where a husband or wife becomes a Christian after they're married, uh, Paul says that in some way it's the opposite to Malachi 2. You see that? This believing husband or wife somehow, somehow sanctifies, makes holy, the unbelieving husband or wife. So there's a little caveat on that. I'm just putting a little caveat. But still... If you've got 1 Corinthians 7 open, you'll notice that down in verse 39, Paul says that if a Christian's getting married for the first time, or if they're getting remarried, they must marry someone who belongs to the Lord. Now, they must marry someone who's a part of God's family. And so how do we apply this? I've got two or three, two or three ways. And the first is that maybe you're here and you're single. A Marriage in, on one level isn't even on your radar, but one day it might be. And so what I want you to do is resolve today before God that you will only marry a Christian. That's a good outcome from sitting underneath this passage. right? If you marry someone who's not a Christian, typically one of two things will happen. Either uh, you'll limit your inti- uh, the intimacy you can have with your husband or wife, because the deepest part of who you are, your faith, Uh, they don't want to engage with, they don't get, they don't understand. So the sense in which your intimacy with your husband or wife is limited. Or it will limit the intimacy you have with God, particularly your obedience to God. Because even if your uh, unbelieving husband or wife is incredibly supportive of your faith, there'll be all sorts of points where they say, that is just too far, that's too intense, that's too passionate, that's too sacrificial, we've just got to kind of take the foot off the accelerator a bit. And so you'll constantly be limiting the intimacy you can have with God, your obedience to God, for the sake of your marriage. And so if you're here and you're not married yet, you should resolve today that you will not marry a Christian. Uh, you will only marry a Christian. Cut that out. Only marry a Christian. And I think it follows that you should also resolve that you'll only date Christians. Right, but because the Bible says nothing about dating. There's nothing about dating in the Bible. It doesn't say, Thou shalt not date someone who's not a, uh, who's not a Christian. Uh, but why go out with someone or, or build a particular kind of intimacy with someone if you've already resolved not to marry them? There's no point. Only harm can come from that. Right? So if you're not married, you should resolve today for the sake of your faithfulness to God in for, for the rest of your life, uh, not only uh, that you will only marry a Christian, but that you will only date Christians. Uh, of course, some of you hear that you're in a very different spot, and you think, "What do you know? What do you know? You're the guy who got married young. You've got no idea about my situation, All right? Because you've been single for a very long time. Uh, you would actually really like to be married, uh, but the options uh, amongst the suitable Christian men just seem pretty uh, sparse. You know what I mean?" So you're tempted. You are tempted to look elsewhere, outside God's family. Perhaps you're a bit. Uh, you're like the the Christian woman I spoke to once, who'd signed up for the non-Christian dating site. And we were talking about this, and what she said was, "I know I really shouldn't do that, but I'm desperate. Right? And I don't want to minimise that. So, like, oh, like, I am someone who got married young. I don't want to pretend to understand the pain of that kind of loneliness or the longing that you might have for intimacy. Those things are hard and and very real. But I do know that the answer is not to marry someone who's not a Christian. The answer to your pain, that'll just create a whole world of other pain. So we we have to support one another in that. Right, comfort one another pray for one another provide real genuine community for one another particularly if you're struggling with that and if this is your struggle uh, i want you to ask god today to help you to trust that he as your heavenly father is good that he knows your needs or well, you should be assured that he's good because he he gave his son for you on the cross so right? that's that strong assurance of the goodness of your heavenly father So maybe you need to say to yourself, if it's my Heavenly Father's plan for me to wait to to be married or even not be married, the cross tells me that he must have good and loving and wise reasons for that. He's not just messing with me. He must have good reasons, even if I don't get them. So I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him and ask for his help to trust him. Uh, finally, you might be uh, a Christian here who is already married to someone who's not a Christian. Uh, if that's you, I guess I want you to be alert, but not alarmed. Uh, be alert uh, because without the support of a Christian husband or wife, it can be much harder to stay faithful to Jesus. We, we shouldn't pretend about We shouldn't be naive about that. Just it's not paddock stations, <laughs> but we do have to be alert. You need to get good supports around you if you're not getting encouragement from a, a, a godly husband or wife. But don't be alarmed, not panic stations. The, the language in this passage is very intense, isn't it? Desecration. Kind of like it's intense language. But we do have to hear God's words as He intended them. Remember, God is speaking to Israel. They're backsliding. They're hard hearted. They're going through the motions of their faith. His aim is not to condemn them so that they would be burdened by guilt and shame and drift further from Him. That's not his aim. His aim is that they would be convicted so that they would come before him in humble repentance, admit their mistakes and embrace his grace to them. That's what he wants. And that's what he wants for you. If you're someone who recognizes this day that, that perhaps you've done something that you shouldn't have in marrying someone who's not a Christian. This is not to condemn you, but it would be a great thing if you came before God today in humble repentance and said, Look, God, I know this isn't your ideal. Please forgive me for that, and help me to love my husband or wife well. So that's that part. Unfaithfulness in God's family, unfaithfulness through mixed marriages. And verses 13 to 16, are unfaithfulness through divorce. Have a look there from verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because he no longer looks with favour on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit, and what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. You see the flow of the passage in verse 13, the people of Israel are weeping, they're wailing, they're they're wondering, why isn't God accepting our prayers, our offerings? And God says it's because there are men in Israel who are divorcing their wives. See, they've made the promises of marriage before the Lord as their witness, And now they're being unfaithful to those promises. Probably there's a connection between verses 11 and 12 and verses 13 to 16 in that the men of Israel are seeing seeing women of other religions that they find very attractive. The grass is greener over there. And so they're divorcing their wives to marry these women who worship a foreign god. That is particularly detestable to God. Of course, today, divorce is seen as a somewhat unfortunate, but, well, pretty normal part of life, isn't it? It's clear from verses 15 and 16 that that's not how God sees it. These verses are some of the most confusing in the Bible, but what's not confusing is that God does not want divorce to be normal amongst his people. Commonplace. God hates divorce. Why does he hate it? Well, he hates it. Look at verse 16. Because it's like an act of violence. The man who hates and divorces his wife does violence to the one he should protect. So that's that's why I've got these two bits of paper up here. Uh, if you hadn't seen them already, these two bits of paper that I've glued together—like uh, I certainly have it—these two bits of paper have become one, right? They're, they're in this kind of deep union. Uh, I, I'm gonna just going to pull them apart. It's going to be easy, right? So. Uh, there it is. Oh, wait—they're not really apart yet. Um, oh, wait—they're not quite apart yet. Now, no—I'm kind of making light of this, right? But this is why God hates divorce. Two people who've been united together as one flesh, and we think that we can just pull them apart, and people won't get hurt. People won't get torn apart and damaged in all sorts of ways. That's why God hates divorce. He hates the damage it causes to the husband and wife, the damage it causes to children. And if they're Christians, he hates the damage that it causes to his glory. Because he is the God who is faithful to his promises. And he wants his people to to be those who are faithful to their promises too. Particularly their promises in marriage. So how do we apply this? Well first, it does need to be said that this isn't everything the Bible has to say about divorce. There are Other passages we could talk about, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, and in those passages it's very clear that in some situations there is Biblical grounds for divorce. Adultery, abuse, abandonment, there, is, there are situations where divorce is not detestable to God. But that's not the focus here, is it? In this passage, God is addressing a situation where his people are divorcing their wives for completely unacceptable reasons. And let's be honest, in the vast majority of situations, the stats of divorces, that's the case. Completely unacceptable, biblically, reasons. So with that in mind, I want to apply in three ways. Right? The first is uh, that maybe you're here today and you're preparing to get married. I don't, I don't know if there's anyone in that category. Uh, but you're preparing to get married. Uh, you've seen the promises of marriage. You know, till death do us part. You're feeling a bit overwhelmed. Uh, but the thought pops into your mind, well, you know, really, I shouldn't worry too much because we can always get divorced. I don't, maybe you haven't thought that. Right? But if that's what you're thinking, you should not get married. <laughs> You're absolutely not ready to get married if if you've kind of got divorce on the table as an option before you've even got started. That's the first thing. A second, uh, obviously many of you here today are married. And for some of you, as you sit here this day, your marriage is struggling big time. Are you actually finding it hard to feel any feelings of love at all for your husband or wife. The thought of divorce is never far from your mind. So if that's you, I want you to hear these words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He once said this to a couple he was marrying. He said, Remember that from this day forward, it is not your love that sustains your marriage, but your marriage that sustains your love. When he says marriage there, he's talking about the covenant of marriage. It's not uh, not your love that sustains the covenant of marriage, but your covenant of marriage that sustains your love. That's tricky for us because we live in a culture that's obsessed with the idea of falling in love. On one level, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a wonderful thing to fall in love. But feelings of love will not sustain a marriage for a lifetime. Your marriage will be sustained if you and your husband and wife are deeply convinced that you have made a covenant before God. You've made solemn promises before God. And when you did that, God united you together to one another. He bound you together, not so much by your feelings, but by those promises. So if you're struggling in your marriage, all I can say is get on your knees knees today and ask for God's help to strengthen you to be faithful to your marriage promises. Unless, of course... You're in one of those situations I mentioned, abuse in particular. And uh, finally, others here uh, might feel like perhaps you've already sinned in uh, wrongfully getting divorced from someone, and perhaps you're wondering if God will ever forgive you for that. You know, sometimes we, we think these kind of things maybe that the un- the only unforgivable sin. So if that's you, I want you to remember God's intention in this passage. Once again, not to condemn you, leave you burdened with guilt and shame, but to bring you back to Him afresh in all humility, to seek His grace and mercy and compassion. So if you think that perhaps you've sought a sinful divorce, a divorce that that didn't really have clear biblical grounds, let me encourage you to do that today. Come back to God. Repent of that sin and embrace his forgiveness to you in Christ. So this whole passage is about the need for us to guard ourselves against unfaithfulness. I want to finish with five practical ways that we can do that. Uh, The first is, uh, they're, they're all quite brief, right? The first is that we have to remember that we're family here in this church. So as we relate to one another, you must ask yourself, ask God, is this an appropriate way to treat my brother or sister in Christ? Is this showing them kindness and gentleness and respect as one for whom the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was shed? We we have family. We must ask ourselves that question. second, we must remember uh, that we can act as guards for one another. This takes time, but in the context of trusted relationships, we should actually ask quite direct questions of one another. How's your marriage going? Are you being tempted to be unfaithful to your husband or wife? Are you someone who's really tempted to pursue that relationship with a non-Christian? In asking those kind of questions, we can actually guard one another against unfaithfulness. A third, if you're married, uh, prevention is better than cure. Invest in your marriage. Don't take one another for granted. Don't be complacent about your marriage. Make the time to talk and connect and enjoy one another. It's a real priority. A fourth, uh, we can guard ourselves uh, by being alert to the culture around us. Because the culture around us will almost always tell us to follow our heart, to be true to ourselves, to be true to how we feel. But as Christians, we're called to more than that. Not just to be true to how we feel, but to be true to our word, to be true to God's word. And sometimes our feelings are all out of whack. So we've got to be careful that we don't just kind of go with the flow of culture on that. And finally, most importantly, we can guard ourselves against unfaithfulness by remembering God's faithful love for us. I don't, I don't want to put you through watching four weddings and a funeral, but uh, the, the big message of four weddings and a funeral is that true love—you've uh, heard this before—right? True love means never having to say I do. But If you really love someone, you'll be bound together by your feelings. Right? Don't, don't go so outdated and traditional by talking about promises and—you're bound to bind, bind yourselves to one another by your feelings. That's true love. Never having to say I do. But, of course, God's definition of love is that true love is always about saying, I do. God loves us not because we're so lovely, because of his feelings for us. Not primarily, anyway. He loves us because he's chosen to love us, because he's committed to love us, because he's promised to love us no matter what. And we know it's no matter what, because he loved us all the way to the cross, didn't he? We're going to remember that in a second. Broken body, shed blood, because he was dying on the cross for all our unfaithfulness to him. Not because he'd been unfaithful to the covenant, so he deserved to die, but because we'd been unfaithful. And he was so committed to his relationship with us, so faithful to his promises, that his body was broken and his blood was shed. So as we remember that kind of faithful love from God, our Heavenly Father, we as as God's children should be moved in our hearts to guard ourselves against unfaithfulness. To guard ourselves against unfaithfulness in our church family, uh, in who we choose to marry, and in our marriages themselves. Let me pray, and we're going to sing. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that your word... um, It doesn't just kind of skim over the surface of life, uh, but tackles all the the nitty-gritty of our lives. And we know that when you call us to love you with our heart, soul, mind and strength, that that kind of love infiltrates every part of our lives, uh, including how we think about relationships. Please, Father, uh, preserve us in being faithful to one another in our church family, being people who are true to our word, Please, Father, uh, help us uh, to be faithful to you in who we choose to marry. And please, Father, uh, help us to be faithful to you in our marriages. May we not be unfaithful to the wives or husbands of our youth. Uh, Help us, we pray, move our hearts by your faithful love for us. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen.